All right, I'm going to be honest. This is kind of a tough chapter. If you're if you're the type of person that reads scripture and you're trying to like find faults, there's some alleged faults you could find in this chapter amongst the other ending of David's life. So that in itself sets up some some problems. It sets up some things to be aware of. There's a lot of stuff in this chapter where if you're reading it and you're like, why did 70,000 innocent people have to pay the crime, have to pay the price for David's sin? That's a realistic question, a realistic worry. Why is God so harsh against David for just counting as men? Uh, there's a lot of stuff when you read this chapter, you're like, man, I, I don't know if I really like what's going on. Well, here, here's the summary for that. You ready? You don't have to like it because it's God's word. <laughs> really? But we're going to talk about it. But we just need to understand, like, there's a lot of things like this in Scripture. And to begin with, just at the very beginning, when you look at this being the end of David's life, you know, quote unquote, I mean, he doesn't actually die yet. But this is one of the last things recorded. A whole nother story is recorded uh, in Chronicles about the end of his life. Is it contradictory? No, it's two different people. That one doesn't say David died in a car accident and the other said they didn't have cars. And the other one, you know, doesn't talk about, you know, David dying of starvation. Uh, not two different ways he died. They're just recording two different highlight moments at the end of David's life. You know, no different than if you were to ask two family members, you know, to record the end of, of somebody or a memory from somebody's life. Like they may come up with two different um, things. So this isn't necessarily contradictory stuff. It's just just two different points of view. Uh, so if you see the title. And if you listen just now to David, or I know some of you read and studied this week, you see the word cost, and that's it. Crystal asked me, you know, for a title yesterday. She asked me for a title this morning, and and I couldn't come up with anything. And then I'm reading, I'm like, you know what? Just cost. Just cost. Because sin at the beginning of this chapter costs David and his people. And at the very end, which we'll get to, worship has to cost something. You know, so, so that's it. Cost on both ends, both, both positive and negative across the thing. So let's jump into this. Chapter 24, verse 1. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Then there's that word again. Some uh, Duke's translation, I think, started with, again, the Lord's anger burned. Aren't you about sick of hearing God have to get mad at God's people again and again and again and again and again? You know, it's easy to sit back and worry about it. I wonder how often God looks at our life and he burns with anger against us again. And he's disappointed in our decision again. And he's not happy about what we did again. And we get that. So as we jump into this thing here, here's probably one of the biggest things and weirdest contradictions. If you could have a major contradiction in scripture without checking it out, it says, and he motivated David to take this census right at the very beginning. Now, I love how the, the Holman puts it. Christian standard puts it the same way. I'm not sure about all the other translations, um, but it has a lowercase he there. So if you're looking at this, when you first read it, you're thinking like God. He's talking about the Lord in the first sentence. So so it's the Lord that, that tempted him to do this. You're like, holy cow, why is God tempting David to commit a sin? God will not tempt us to commit sin. So when you look at Chronicles, you see that the word he there at the very beginning for, for that ending of David's life is talking about Satan. And it's Satan that tempts David to do this. So you can look at it this way so that we understand that we're in complete agreement that Scripture doesn't contradict one another. This translation, it would have been a lowercase he talking about. Or it could just be something as simple as this. God allowed Satan to tempt David because he's so sick of what David and his people have gotten themselves into again. Not to say that God tempted him, but God allowed this to take place. And we see that happen all the time. I only point it out because I don't want us leaving here today saying, you know, was it God? I mean, God or Satan, that's a pretty big contradiction. I don't know if you can get a a more major contradiction of, of who said what. So we need to understand how awesome God is. And what I see is this. Scripture is teaching us just another thing, and we're 
misunderstanding sometimes the sovereignty of God. God and his sovereignty can use whoever, whatever, whenever to accomplish his plan. And we have to be okay with that. We have to understand that. So both of these statements can be okay because nothing is outside of God's control. He may allow the temptation and, and David may have just fell into the temptation, much like we do. But God takes our, and this is what blows my mind. God takes our free decisions. He takes the evil and the malicious intentions of Satan and somehow can always work those things out for his ultimate plan. Now, we don't even know the ultimate plan. We don't know the major plan. But God is always using all this stuff to get it done. And if you're one of those people that, you know, you want everything in this math formula, you, you want an Excel sheet of God understanding everything and, and talking about understanding and understanding God, let me go ahead and bust your bubble, hit delete on the computer. God doesn't fit into your mental Excel sheet. Okay, we're talking about God here. We're not talking about a person. We're not talking about one of us. If we were to stop and think for just a minute, and if you're on the fence one way or the other, that, that's fine. Good, good moment to, to pause and reflect and understand this. If God exists, and Scripture says God created the planets, he created this, he, he created the stars, he created the atoms and the molecules with just one word. With just one word. It says he spoke it into existence. And if we're to look at our real life thing and we're to take one, one, one strand of DNA, Scientists say one strand of DNA has enough coded information to fill up 500 encyclopedia-sized books. That's a lot of information, am I right? All right? So, so if God did all that, and, I, and maybe you guys are different than me, I've got a problem sometimes getting my DVD player to work with my cable at the same time, like figuring out the input and, and the output. i got a problem trying to reset the clock on, on, on the, the uh, radio in the car when the seasons change. Uh, so I've got problems with like some really small Stuff. So I understand that God is much bigger and his wisdom is much more infinite than mine. Greatly so. Okay. so if we're to talk about God and his wisdom and his power and his ability, I'm okay to understand that I can't make sense of God with a lot of things. And there's going to be some things in Scripture that I read and I don't necessarily like or understand why and what God is doing. But I have to be okay with it if he is God and I'm not. So so three notes I got at the beginning of this week. When I was reading and thinking about this, that I think you should write down if you want to. Uh, if not, at least you should should think about it. Right? Here, here's I guess you call it counsel for the beginning. You shouldn't have too much confidence in your own abilities. You shouldn't have too much confidence in your own ability. That's what gets David in this this problem. He starts to have confidence in his own abilities. Why else would he want to count his men? Right? Another thing, and I think this one ought to be a Bible verse personally. Quit trying to make God as dumb as you are. You know what I'm saying? Like, that sounds weird, and maybe that's why God was smart enough not to put it in the Bible, because he thought it would just sound bad. But, but, but I think that ought to be like a Bible verse somewhere at the very end. Maybe it should be like a little note and a highlight, and I'm not telling you to add to Scripture, okay? This is just a joke. But I think we ought to write that down. Like, try, stop trying to make God as dumb as you are. Why do we want to downplay and lower God? And, and then the other one, which you may have saw last night, is when we come into God's presence, we ought to have a lot less strut and a lot more bow. That's where David goes throughout this whole chapter. He comes in strutting. Now, I don't know if you guys see it and you understand it yet, which we're going to talk about it. When he comes in and he tells Jonah and his commanders, I want you to count all my men. He calls them my men. They're no longer God's men. It's no longer God's country. It's no longer God's army. He says, I want you to count all my men. And I want you to see how many of my men we have so that we might be able to. We don't understand what David is necessarily doing, but there's some assumptions we can make. But David is checking out how strong he's gotten this nation. And now it's becoming about numbers. Which remember, what did David start with? A slingshot and a giant. He started without numbers. 
He had trust and faith at the very beginning, and that was it. And here he's now beginning to transition this stuff into thinking about all the stuff he's developed and how awesome he's made this place. And then we get to the end where, of course, he does get to that bowing moment yet again because he is a man after God's own heart. So so here's some stuff, and, he, and here's the command. David commands Jonah the men, go number Israel and Judah. Go check them all out. And in case you're wondering scripturally why this is so wrong, here's the principle that, that, that puts a, a negative mark by this. Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that they may be no plague among them when you number them. So we're right at the very beginning of God's word. Exodus, second book of God's word. He's given us instructions that this ain't the way you do it. And here's why you don't do it this way. And if you're going to do it, because I commanded it to be done, here's what has to take place. And if it doesn't take place that way, then a plague is coming. Now, now understand what's going on in Exodus. This speaks of God's ownership. All right. When somebody had the right to count something, it meant they owned it. Now, who owns Israel? You better say that with a lot more confidence. Who owns Israel? Israel is not David's. David has no right to count the numbers of Israel and claim them as himself. He is king, but he is not God. Okay, this is this is God's thing. So God's right out there saying, man, you need to make sure Israel still belongs to me. And when a census is taken and stuff is good, go back to Exodus 30, verse 12. What happens is, is there's a sacrifice and atonement made in the counting for me. Now, now we don't like that. And, and we could we could and we will explain a little bit more on why this is wrong. But here's what I want us to understand. If we're going to be Bible believing people, then something's wrong because God says it's wrong. And that's enough. OK, now I'm going to give you some reasons more on why I think David was so wrong in this. But in all honesty, it doesn't matter how many reasons I come up with, how many reasons you come up with or, or thoughts in between both of those things. If we're going to be Bible professing, believing believers. Because God says it's wrong is enough of a reason for it to be wrong. And if God says it's right, then the opposite takes place. So get down to verse three. Three through four, Joab objects to the census. Now, we've talked before about how awesome Joab is. and We need to surround ourselves sometimes with people like Joab. But he goes to David and he says this. Why are you delighting in this thing? Why do you desire to have this count? Is that really the smart thing to do? And I love it because Joab isn't afraid to speak to David about what he thought was wrong. We need to surround ourselves with people sometime that are willing to ask us the tough questions when we maybe get out to do something wrong. You know, when you're about to date somebody who you maybe shouldn't date. You're about to go somewhere you might shouldn't go. When you're about to take a job, maybe you shouldn't take. When you're about to drink something you shouldn't drink or smoke something you shouldn't smoke or anywhere in between. Surround yourself with people who are going to look at you and be like, man, what is your, why are you delighting in this? Why does this make you happy? And, and Joab's motive is this. We talk about it in the upper room all the time. How do you hold a brother accountable without sounding so ju judgmental and harsh against them? When your best interest is that person and the people surrounding them, it is okay to hold them accountable. Do we understand that? Joab, Joab's not doing this to take the king's spot. He's not doing this just to be a jerk. He's doing this because he actually cares about David's reputation and the people of Israel. And just in the way he asked this, when he says, why do you delight? Why do you delight in this? Like, why, why are you, you can picture David when he, when he commands him to go. He's kind of like smiling. That word desire is where delight translates in, into some of your translations, depending on which, which translation you got and you're looking at. But you can picture David like really being happy that he's sending his people to count the people and he knows the number is going to be great. Like, go see how many followers, how many people 
we've grown this nation to. Okay? And he does this, and you can sense in Joab's question on why you want to do this is that there's a pride issue taking place. So here, here's maybe some ideas from verse three where that word uh, pride, delight, desire comes in combined with verse 10 where David does admit he's wrong. Here's maybe three things he's also doing that make this wrong. So not just if, if, if it being because it was against God wasn't enough. Here's three more things this tells us about him wanting to count. Number one is, is the pride. He's rejoicing in how strong he's made this nation. Church, when we let pride get in the way, a lot of trouble follows on every level. God talks constantly from beginning to end of his book and a lot in the middle about loving the humble person and hating pride. David's about to let pride get in the way. And from that pride, here's what happens when we let pride get in the way, leads to the second thing that we see that's negative. David's getting a lack of faith now. He's got a lack of faith. Beforehand, it didn't matter how many people. Have you ever seen David? All the armies we've looked at, all the battles we've looked at in, in, in two long books over the course of a year. Have you once seen David say, you know what? Let's count how many men we got before we go into this fight. Show me. Show me where it's at. We got 40 years of David's life. 80 years if we count some of the preliminary stuff that we looked at. Even when he's in the cave hiding, show me once where he wanted to count and see how the numbers stacked up. None. There isn't any. His faith is now changing. His trust in Christ is changing. It's no longer the, the little guy with a slingshot that's willing to go forth and take on the giant just because God is on his side and God is enough. He's worried about if they'll be able to defend themselves if armies attack. He's worried if he'll have enough men. He's not trusting in the promises of God as, as God has already promised. God had given Israel explicitly started. It's my job to take care of you. What does he tell believers today? It is my job to take care of you. Remember some verses in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking and he says, you worry so much about what you're going to wear and about what you're going to eat. He goes, the birds don't even have to worry about that because God takes care of them. We have a lack of trust sometimes. And that's a problem. And the third thing we see. Which I didn't notice is how important to us. I started looking at a lot of God's judgment on people through all the scripture. Is aggression. Aggression. You you getting ready now. We don't really have a lot of gang fights and that's good. Shouldn't be promoting that, right? But if two gangs are getting ready to fight, what might they do? Let's see how many men we got, right? Let's see how many people we got. Why? Because nobody wants to go into the fight. Nobody wants to pick a fight without making sure they can win it. So might it be, and and I'm not saying which one of these three it is. Maybe it's a combination of all three. But David let pride get in the way. He let a lack of faith come in, which is a lack of trust. And he had some aggression. And I believe it's because he might have been thinking about maybe taking over more territory. And he wanted to make sure before we go pick a fight, let's make sure we got the numbers on our side. So uh, aggression was a big thing and a big problem for him. What should David have been doing? David should have been boasting about the, the grace of God, the strength of God, the awesomeness of God. He should have spent the last days of his life talking about how awesome God was and all that God had done and, and the protection and the promises that God had, had, had succeeded. He should have delighted in God's treasure, not the potential of the land, the riches and other nations. So late in David's reign, David's tempted to make all this glory about himself. And what we really see, and here's the saddest part of it, I didn't realize until this week after reading, what we see taking place at the very end of 2 Samuel is what we saw at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. What did it say at the very beginning of 1 Samuel? And the people wanted to rule themselves. They didn't want God to be in charge. They wanted a king like all the other nations had. And what we're getting here at the very end now 
is David is no longer worried about God being in charge and ruling. He's worried about the army being in charge and ruling. And we see David sinking back into the same spirit of, of vain or glory in numbers, taking possession and stuff. And as he does so, he's forgetting God. And, and here's the truth about it. And you can you can write this down and write it right beside in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 30. Prosperity can endanger our relationship with God. Prosperity can endanger our relationship with God. Maybe the easiest illustration is this. We've now developed chores in the morning since these kids want to stay out of school and stay home for so long. So we've got a dog feeder. We've got a dog water. And what I've noticed is that one of the boys, we won't use any names because that's not polite. And I don't want my kids to be picked on because I love them. And But Paxton, he'll fill up. He'll fill up this bowl of water as high as he can get the bowl of water. March across the living room with a trail of dripping water behind him to the front door to then say, help. Somebody open the front door for me. I'm holding all the water. Now you laugh, but here's a good sermon illustration that he's provided for me. It is easier to carry a cup that is not quite full than to carry a full cup. Now you think about that with prosperity. Prosperity can endanger our relationship with God because it's more difficult to carry a cup that is full than to carry a cup that is empty. Am I right? We wonder so many times as believers, like, man, why? Why ain't God blessed me with this? Why ain't God did this? Why ain't I winning this? Why ain't I got this? Maybe because you couldn't handle it. And you would be standing at the door after dripping a puddle of stuff all over the living room that Abba's going to be real mad about. <laughs> yelling, help! I can't open the door because I'm trying to tote too much stuff because I've been blessed with all this stuff. Does it make sense? But we get mad at God with this. Proverbs, Solomon, wise, writes this, chapter 38 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. How many of you be bold enough to pray that, man? Now, you got to pray it the way he's praying it, and here's why. And he even explains it. Right? Because if I got too much, I may disown you, God, and say, who are you? But he also says this, or if I become too poor, and I, then I'll steal and dishonor your name. This is a wise guy right here who's writing. He understands like God. He's not saying God make me poor. He's not saying I got to give everything away. But he's also not saying like I need everything either. He's saying, God, just, just give me my daily bread. Like I, I'm not enough where I got to go steal to make stuff and dishonor you. But, but I'm not high above where I forget you either. Man, that ought to be the ultimate goal. Maybe our goal of success isn't as necessarily right as we think it is, right? And, here, and here's maybe a lesson we need to look at at the beginning that, that you, you ought to jot down to the church needs, right? Even a person who has a heart after God, they still got to struggle with sin. David's a guy, he, he's a heart after, he's a heart after God, man. He's, called, he's the only one in scripture called that. Well, there's more written about David than any other character in scripture other than Jesus. And to even make that part true, you got to actually use some of the illustrations about Jesus. Jesus' words aren't necessarily in. David has written about a lot. So there's a lot for us to learn. Second Samuel ends with David repeating the sin that started this whole thing. So David sinned here because he delighted in the strength of his numbers. Maybe you should ask yourself this. What is it I'm delighting in? Because I don't think we're quite like David, but I think God's question is still the same for us. What am I delighting in that makes me and my heart sore just a little? Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's how much money you made last year. Maybe it's an award you got. Maybe it's a trophy you got. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your, your stock portfolio. Maybe, maybe it's your body. 
Maybe you're so you're so confident in the way you look in the mirror now. Maybe it's how hard you work. But here's the problem. It's not not a problem to, to be happy with that stuff. It's a problem. We say, man, look at what I've done. Look at what I've made. Look at what I've created. Ain't I something? All those eyes replace he and it gets us in trouble. Verse four, man, it's not only Joab that's warning. It's all the commanders. This guy is surrounded by men that are saying, I don't think this is the best move for you to do. But what happens five through nine? The census is still taken. The census is still taken. All those names of places that Duke read that I'm not going to attempt to were still visited. Numbers were still counted. And I don't know what the significance is, but I got to point it out. Do you realize it took them as long to take the census as it would have taken a woman to deliver a baby? Look at it. Nine months and what? A couple weeks. What's that added to? About 40 weeks. So you got a 10 month roughly period to complete the census. Now, first of all, I'm thinking as a king, you got to see you're wasting some resources if you're spending 10 months sending people around to count men you weren't even supposed to count. But then I wonder if there's just a, a hidden illustration there that maybe. Maybe what is is developing here. Is the birth of something. And that birth might necessarily be the punishment. It might necessarily be the wrong. Or maybe it might be God's ultimate purpose in the birth, which is to get his people back on track. See, we look at the punishment at the end of this thing like it's so harsh and so bad. But we need to understand that sometimes God has to punish us to get us back on track. We've got a a new puppy and he had the bright idea this or last week. I'm sorry to think he could follow the kids down the driveway around the woods and and jump onto the main road. First time he's done it. He hadn't left our our older Weimaraners side the entire time. So we weren't worried. But so so this week we ordered a a collar that's got this electronic device on it. And we set out, you know, while we were cutting grass, they set out all the flags around. So he sees his perimeter and he sees and we took time to walk him right to the edge so that he could hear the beep so that he knew when. And then we trained him while the kids rode bikes past the white flags. A couple of times he had to learn the hard way that he wasn't supposed to pass them. But here's the thing. He's learned and now he knows. Now, you can look at that. And you can think, man, what a harsh guy. Or you could be thinking, man, a little shot now is a whole lot better than getting squished by a car later. Now, it's easy for us when we look at it that way. But when we read scripture and we look at what God does and God's looking at eternity, a much bigger picture than we look at. Why is it why is it so hard to understand that what God's doing with 70,000? Is actually to save a nation and a people group and, and, and an entire class of people for him. They finish this census and they they give this some man. We got one point three million fighting men total. You know, you, you read the translation. We got so many here and so many there. We got over a million fighting men ready. Now, for those of you to study scripture, you're going to read Chronicles and it's going to have a different number. Why? Have no idea. Got a couple got a couple uh hypotenuses. Hypothesis. Thank you. Everybody loves being corrected by the wife on stage. We'll talk about this when we get to the truck. Right. But 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 here's what we need to understand about this. We've got we've got translations coming down for years. Possibly somebody messed up there. I, I, whatever. Here, here's here's kind of the, the more more accurate one. I think this is just it's not the right answer. It's not the wrong answer. This is what I think. Right. What I think is this. Maybe in Chronicles when they added the one point three million, then they added the number of men that was already in the registered army. The numbers would match up that way if you do a little bit of studying. That's what I did this week because I'm a numbers kind of guy, but I'm not saying that's it. I'm just saying that's a good thing. Verse 10. 
Let's get into some more stuff that matters. Verse 10. Look at this thing. David's conscience troubled him. Some of your translations put his heart. After he had taken a census of the troops, he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Yahweh, please, I've been very foolish. Please take away your servant's guilt. This is repentance. This is repentance. He's not only admitting he's wrong, he's also asking for the guilt to be removed. He's wanting change. But what you got to understand at the very beginning is it's David's heart that condemned him. David's conscious that condemned him. He's a man after God's own heart, so he's got a sensitive heart to sin. Ask yourself, are you that sensitive to sin? We talk all the time about what we can get away with and what we can't get away with. A true believer in the kingdom of God, they can't get away with nothing. Because their heart gets beat up with guilt whenever they know they did something against God. Some of the most awesome stories I've seen is people who had to confess a sin long after that sin was ever even still going on. Long after that, the, the sin had already been dealt with, had been stopped, had been finalized. Yet something on the inside, like here with David, wouldn't let them move on. So they said, you know what? It's more important that I get right with God than for me to try to override the consequences that follow behind it. David knows consequences are coming. When he says, help me, help me get rid of this guilt, he knows that means there's got to be a popping in order for me to get over. So it's hard to know. We need this. We need a sensitive heart to sin. Then he says, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done foolishly. He sees the pride in this thing. And then he gets his prize. Look at 11 through 13. Now you're thinking this is a big turnaround. Things are going to be great. Kind of reminds me of like a genie in a bottle right now. Because what happens? You, you've got Gad. He comes forth and he goes, you pick. Pick one of these three. Rather than getting three wishes, he gets three punishments. Y'all ever had a, a mom or dad do that to you? Y'all never had a mom or dad ask you what you wanted for punishment? Y'all, y'all been spoiled your whole lives. You don't understand. All right, Wilson's with me. So Wilson has good parents that raised him the right way. And at one point they probably said, look, do you want to lose your Xbox? Do you want to beaten with the belt? Do you want timeout? Do you want whatever it is? They, they made this list. And you sat there and thought about each one of them. Like, well, I do like playing games. And that's going to last a little longer. Restriction, man, I really like going places. I really like the TV. And if you were dumb like me, you said, I'll take the beating. Because it hurts, but it's over quick, right? <laughs> it can't be that bad. You know, a couple minutes of pain and then, then, you're, then you're good to go. Or if you're like some kids that are afraid of that part, you take the other. And then a couple weeks later, they begin to question if they made the right decision. Did, did I pick the right punishment? That's kind of where God is right here with David, man. He's allowing David to choose his judgment. I think what God is doing here is he's testing David's wisdom. David, we're going to find out if you're really a changed man, if you're really condemned by the sin you committed, then we're going to find out how real you are because look at the options he gets. And you've got to put yourself in David's shoes to understand why it's a test of wisdom. First option, seven years of famine. That's a long time, right? Would this have bothered David at all? David's king, man. He'd be chilling in the palace. People would be bringing him grapes still. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this, this famine wouldn't bother him at all. It wouldn't bother any of the wealthy people. So now you get a separation of class. Is David going to pick a punishment that the higher up people? You know, you know what amazes me? And I, I ain't getting on no voting thing, but understand this. Every time voting time comes up, 
You ever notice how they pick a group of people to cater to? You ever watch that? They only cater to them during that time. Maybe that's that's one of the, the things David is tempted to. Maybe another thing is this. If there's a famine going on, I don't care how spiritual or awesome of a person you are and how much you try to follow the rules. If there's a famine going on, what you going to do to get food? Anything. Who said it? Anything. I'm going to do anything I can. Y'all look at me. I ain't going hungry. You know what I'm saying? Like, we we will get some food. Here's maybe one of his worries. So not only is the wealthy's not going to have to worry. If you do anything to get food, maybe now you're going to start compromising and bartering with foreign nations that you aren't supposed to be mixing with. Ah, you got to look at all of it, right? Second thing he's tempted to in these verses, 11 through 13. He says, you can flee three months before your enemies. Fancy word. Get ready to fight since you just counted all you men, right? Now, now who's this going to bother? Is it going to bother David? You got to be sure you got to keep up with our series so you know where we're at. This is David post his men telling him what? David, you ain't fit to fight no more. You was great when you was fighting giants. It was awesome that you still got the desire as an old man. But brother, the last time you was on the battlefield, Joe had to come and rescue you from that one giant. And ever since then, we didn't figure it out. Like if you die, we in a lot of trouble. So you're not, you're not going to the battlefield no more. So punishment number two, fighting your enemies for X amount of time. Would that, would that bother David? Who's going to punish? Who's the punishment going to bother now? One group of people. Who? The fighting men. All those men you were so proud of that you just now put at risk. This is the punishment that they'll be going on. Right? And they'll be fighting battles they weren't necessarily supposed to fight. And we've seen the course of, of Israel when they fight battles they're not supposed to fight. What happens? So option two. Option three. Three days plague in your land. Now you look at this option and this could strike anybody, right? Rich, poor, soldier, non-soldier, royalty, common, influential, nobody. Everybody's fair game when it comes to a plague. David's thinking, David's thinking, David's thinking. David gets to verse 14 and he chooses. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. And then how do you know, how do you know that's what David's picking? Because who controls who dies? And a plague. Whether you like it or not, God, right? It was like, is it holy to blame God? For yes, because God's claiming it. Okay? Swallow your worry. Your, your worry isn't, isn't bigger, bigger than God, okay? Like God's not worried that your worry and your lack of understanding is bigger than him. He's like, I'm, I'm a big boy. Okay, I can handle your lack of understanding, your worry, your doubt, your, 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 your uh, non-trust or whatever you want to call it. I'm God. I got it. So yes, this is God. Be confident. No. But what does it also mean is this. It means it's fair game for everybody. This isn't something that's just hitting the rich. This isn't something that's just, or just hitting the poor. This isn't something that's just hitting soldiers. This hits everybody. And what David says here is remarkable in what's about to take place. Because when he says, please let me fall on the hand of the Lord, and he follows it through with, don't let me fall into the hand of man. What he's saying is this, God, you are more gracious than man. Do we understand that? Do, do we live that way? He's got two options here. Right, right, that, that, that keep him safe, keeps his family safe, and he doesn't choose them. This third option completely puts him at risk. Completely, because he knows he's who was like the final straw to get it to this right here. Right? I say final straw because God started this chapter saying, I'm already really mad at you people. So it's not just you, David. I'm mad at everybody right now. Right? But, but in going through this, please don't let me hand to the, to the fall of man, because God, you are much more gracious 
than man is. Verse 15 through 17, the results of the plague. 70,000 people die. Wow, his forces have been depleted. What is that? One, now we're down to one out of 20 now? That's crazy, right? And, and here's what we understand. Here's what we need to, to grab as we look at this and we wow and we're like, man, that's a big punishment. Here's our problem when we let pride get in the way of our walk. We tell God, God, I'll believe your rules if I understand them and I agree with them. Because we hear these harsh punishments like, God, I don't know if I agree with what's going on here, right? Listen, if God's the one making the rules, you don't have to understand them or have to like them, right? Just think about things. It's easier for us to understand real life. So let's go real life scenario again. Not only toting the, toting the water, let, let's go real life on this. When, when our kids were real little, one of the things you always teach a kid when it's little, if you've got a, a little child and you haven't taught them this, you probably want to. You, you tell them, don't stick a fork in that little slit in the wall. <laughs> Common rule, right? Some of them may be bold enough to say, why? Now, you could pause for a minute, you could take in a deep breath, and you could say, because there's an invisible force called electricity, which will yield a subatomic particle jumping between orbits that creates an alternating current that if it enters your body, it can disrupt your central nervous system and burn your skin. Anybody give their kid that answer when they ask why? I didn't either. I had to Google it, right? <laughs> try that on your try that on your two or three year old and see how they go, right? Or you can just say, because I'm dad, I know more than you know, and I love you. Now, that's what we've all done, right? We're probably on, on ladder of two. I, I'm on two, so I'm by myself. Good. We raised our kids the right way. I, I loved you. I didn't want you to get shocked, so I told you to do it. I didn't know none of those stuff. I had to Google it, boy. Right? So, so we got that going. What's a bigger gap? My understanding of electricity being taught to my, my boy or, or one of the other boy or, or, or daughter when they were three? Or the gap between me and God? What's the bigger gap? I, I sure hope y'all understand. The gap is much bigger, I promise you. This is not a holy trick. This is not a pastor trick. It's not a he read the Bible a lot of times trick. The gap is way, way, way bigger between me and God than it will ever be between me and when he was three, two, one, or negative. Okay? Promise you, much bigger gap. Right? So we need to understand that. If that is true and that is understanding, then we need to understand that if that gap is that much bigger, i got to start trusting God more. Even when I don't understand or can explain things. You could say it this way. If you only obey Jesus when he makes sense to you, he's not your Lord. He's your advisor. Now, what is he? Is he your Lord or is he your advisor? David had plenty of advisors. What did he choose to do? His own thing. When we got advisors, that's what we do. We do our own thing because we let pride and all this other stuff get in the way. If there is a guy, go back to that. If there's a guy and he and this is his word, shouldn't I have the humility to submit to it regardless of my understanding of it? Now, I'm not saying you don't ever study it. I'm not saying you try to get a great under, don't get, try to get a greater understanding of it or any of that. I'm just saying right at the beginning, there's got to be some faith and trust that his word is greater than mine. Now, we looked at the, the, we said three things that could have been false for David. His pride. We discussed it. A lack of faith and trust. We looked at it. Now, now here's the one that I just want to point out as just just what's taking place over over the course of history. Since we get mad at, at God sometimes at, at what he's doing. That That last one, that aggressive military attitude. Do you realize, and this, this is all I could find in, in, in just this week, because I didn't hit this one, right? Almost every one of the big judgments in the Old Testament against society as a whole was punishment for violence. Think about that now. Think about where that's going to go. So Genesis 6, you go back to the beginning. 
Genesis 6, one of the biggest punishments we got, right? The flood. Everybody knows it. What, what does God say? Every thought of men toward each other was once violence. That's what's recorded in Scripture. So God is standing back. He's looking at the world and he's saying, man, you guys got so much violence. Punishment time's coming, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. You go to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, and it says this. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for oppressing, grinding poor people. Now, oppressing and grinding is a violent term. Of course, when it's against somebody who can't defend themselves. You go to the story of Jonah. We all know. I'm picking all stories. We all know. So it's easy. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Why? Scripture says because they were oppressive and brutal to the surrounding nations. That's what it records them as being like. So, so you're not even talking about your own. See, some of them, we were talking about our own people, and we can understand that. God then flips the script and he goes, no, I'm even talking about groups that were brutal and oppressive to outside people. So this isn't just your own people, this is outside. When God sent the, the children of Israel, go back to our current series, well, the very, very, very beginning of our current series, I guess. When God sent the children of, of Israel to Canaan, right? What, what did he tell them? Because of their brutality. Now, and we studied, what did they do? They had infant sacrifices going on. They had pillaging of, of, of nations and villages going on of all their neighbors. They would walk through and just kill everybody they could and collect as much stuff as they could, right? They were taking over that. They were taking the promised land and casting judgment on those nations. And God said, enough is enough. And here we get to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and Israel's becoming the very nation that God had called them to judge. Because they're stacking up their numbers, and they're worried about how much military power they could have. Now, I'm not one of the people that's going to tell you like America is the new Israel or anything like that. But this this kind of stuff right here does make me pause for a minute and ask ourselves, has America started looking like the nations that we first tried to get freedom from? Hmm? Has America started looking like other nations around the world right now in the way we do things? Are we standing out and being any different still? In some instances, maybe, yeah. But in a lot of instances, we're dropping the ball. We're dropping the ball. And maybe that's because we talked about this yesterday at, at, at lunch. You know, the, the question was posed, man, should should we be fighting like they fought back then? Now, rules are a little different for us. OK, we've got to go. So I'm not telling you to go get your, your arrows and your swords and your spears and your slingshots and go fight everybody. All right? That's not where I'm going. But we can fight a little different, can't we? Don't we have ways of fighting, standing up and speaking out? Don't we have ways of making sure wrongs are getting corrected? We do. You might not like them. You, it might hurt your feelings, which I think is probably one of the main reasons people don't fight because they're either worried about the consequences or they're worried about the casualties. Now, your casualty is not a loss of life. Your casualty may be a loss of popularity, maybe a loss of money, maybe a loss of things that you like and, and, and thought you could get, right? That's one of the things that scared us, right? This is God's call for his people, though. And we get here, we get this, this wide view now. Zone back in on this chapter. I didn't want to get us off on too much of a tangent. I apologize. But you get back to 2 Samuel 24, and we look at what God has taken place with these 70,000, right? Now, here's what you got to do. I want you to get in God's seat. Now, that's, that's way up there. You're looking out. You're not bound by time anymore. Like, you get to see it all, right? You got to pretend to do that. Go back to your kid days. Pretend you're like a little child. You're sitting on your big daddy's chair, and you're looking out and seeing the big picture. What I see is God's mercy then. Because, and here, here's why you think, hold on, how is it merciful to kill 70,000 people? Because if these people would have kept on the same track they're going, they would have looked like Sodom and Gomorrah inside of 20 years. 
And what did God have to do to that entire nation? Destroy it. So would it not be merciful for a little shock now rather than an eternal squash on Campbell Road for eternity? Right? I see God's mercy, guys. I, I don't necessarily tell you, man, that's the way I'd have done it. No. But it's God's mercy because it's saving them for a much more devastating judgment that's going to come later. God's work and God's mercy right here, right? So you say this, and maybe you're like me. Now, I jot down all the questions, man, because I think questions make my brain think. One of the questions I had, how is this just? David committed the sin, and the people are paying. Had the people not done anything wrong? Why don't we go back to verse 1? Yahweh's anger burned against Israel again. God's already ticked off at them, right? These are not innocent people. Isn't that the idea we always have? Why do the innocent? Are they really innocent? I mean, we, we don't know exactly. I would assume if the king's attitude is now getting more centered on numbers, I bet his people's attitude is centered that way too. King usually reflects his people, right? Or his people reflect the king. You can say it that way. Or maybe it's just a fact of what have we just looked at for the last four chapters of the end of this thing? They rebel against David this way. They rebel against David this way. They rebel against David this way. Who is David? God's king. Who are they rebelling against? God's king. So who are they rebelling against? God. Right? So they're not exactly innocent people, guys. Don't get fooled into thinking that. And then if you if may be bold enough in your walk with Christ to even go a little further, sometimes I wish I wouldn't go, but but I had this one, all right. There had to be some innocent people in the 70,000. Do we know what 70,000 died? I don't. So really, when we get to this part of the argument, we're arguing for something that we don't even know. Like God may have just killed 70,000 guilty people that had like strict sins on it. We don't know. I kind of thought maybe God killed, this is me being dirty, I guess. I kind of thought maybe God killed 70,000 of the soldiers to show David even a greater lesson. You want to count the soldiers, I'll take 70,000 of them from you. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying like we, we got all speculation right here. So we say, don't, don't the innocent get mixed up with the guilty? Yes. And I think one of the greatest lessons we can learn and understand is innocent people suffer from our sins. And maybe that's the lesson. Maybe the other lesson is this. Is there really an innocent person in all the earth? So even if you look at people and let's just say they've been great their whole life and never made a mistake, aren't they going to make a mistake eventually so they're no longer innocent? And when we're looking at it that way, now this is from God's point of view now. So it's not he made a sin against me or he made a wrong against you. This is he made a sin against God Almighty. So, so God's the only one then that can cast judgment like this on this. Sin costs others. Innocent people suffer because of because of this right here. Then look at what happens twenty or eighteen through twenty one. Eighteen through twenty one. David builds this altar. Last little picture we get, right? David's instructed to erect an altar on the threshing floor. Here's your big note that you got to write down for this one. Sacrifice reestablishes one's priorities. Sacrifice reestablishes one's priorities. At the beginning of this chapter. David was focused all on himself. Now he's back focused on God. Could it be that one of the reasons we don't sense the presence of God in our life today is because we forget to make God a priority? Could it be that we just forget about him? Admit it. it, it it's easier to give a, a tip at a restaurant than it is to put your tie in the church, isn't it? Isn't it? So you're thinking, yeah, because y'all don't pass an offering plate. The box is still back there. Ain't nobody telling you not to give us nothing. We just, we ain't gonna, we ain't gonna ask you for it. You either gonna put it on there or you're not. We don't care. God's gonna take care of it. It's like, we got it, right? But think about it, though. Is it easier to give lip service or to actually serve in the kingdom? Oh, it's a whole lot easier to talk about it than it is to actually start doing stuff, right? 
man, we were all fired up a minute ago about getting America back right. We were thinking like you may have even had thoughts in your head just now of something you could do to start changing America back for like kingdom style living. What you going to do when you leave the doors up? You're going to think about it. You're going to talk about it. Or you're going to do it. It's a whole lot easier to think about it and talk about it. Verse 18, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. This is where David, this is a, this is a real cool picture now we tie this whole thing together. So stay with me here for, for these four or five verses. David meets an angel of the Lord where, where God relented them from the plague, right? Three days is up, 70,000 are done, and, and God's stopping it, right? Now God says what? At this exact spot, this exact place, I want you to build an altar for worship. Now if God says he wants it there, that means something special about there, okay? Like God didn't just randomly pick stuff. So, so first you understand the threshing floor, which we could do a whole thing on we've looked at previous times. Normally a high area where the wind can come and, and blow the nasty stuff away and the good stuff can land back and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But we got to understand the order here. David sins. David repents. Now David's called to worship. I think sometimes we stop in the order. We sin and we never repent. We sin and we repent and we never go back to worship. And, and both of those are equally wrong. This goes back. Now, now here's where I meant where it was cool. This threshing floor that we're talking about today. Rich history, man. Rich history. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 uh, reminds us that, that this is on Mount Moriah. Anybody know that name from Scripture? Maybe. Genesis 22, 2. This is the same hill uh, that Abraham offers Isaac. So here's what I mean by when I think this is a really cool thing. you got to take these four or five verses and picture. Everybody remembers Abraham and Isaac's story, right? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you know, Abraham was called to offer his son Isaac for a sacrifice. He took him up to the hill. He got to the point where he was even drawing the, the knife ready to, to, to do what he was supposed to do because he was obedient in his faith to follow God. And right at that moment, a lamb appears. Now you've got to picture this scene. This scene, you've got an angel who, who's, who's maybe casting this plague across people on the same spot. And this is the same spot that God comes in and says, stop. That's enough. We're going to draw the line right there. Now, that's a cool picture, especially when you continue to read in Genesis 22, where it talks about this would be related to the hills where Jesus dies on the cross. Oh, man, this really is like this special, special place, right? Later on in Chronicles, I think it's chapter 21, we find out this is where Solomon's temple's built. There's a lot of good stuff going on right here. Here's what's awesome. Here's what's awesome. Verse 21. He goes to buy this threshing floor from this guy, right? Because David wants to transform this place, this place that we were, a shaft was separated from wheat, this place that is going to become a place for sacrifice, this place that is eventually going to become a place of worship, and then it'll become a place of Solomon's temple, First Chronicles 21, 28, uh, into chapter 22. He, he wants this. He wants this. 22 through 24, though, you get this, this awesome heart of this guy. I don't want to take away from this guy's heart. He says, man, you don't have to pay me nothing. I want to give it to you. I want to give you the land. I want to give you the, the cow. I, I want to give it to you. What did we title the sermon, though? Cost. See, we want the cheapest way out a lot of times. David probably wanted a cheap way out. But David knew if it didn't cost him something, then it wasn't his sacrifice. And it couldn't be his worship. Right? This got to cost you something. So David says, no, man, I... I can't take that. I mean, it's a really nice gift and, and it's cool and I love your generous heart and, and that's all great. But but if, if I do that, then it's your sacrifice and not mine. How many times we try to ride on the coattails of somebody else's sacrifice? How many times you know you know that you know what I've learned? That it this might hurt your feelings and get over it if it does, okay? The the reason we like corporate worship sometime in those big events 
is because we can ride on the coattails of somebody else's worship. Am I right? Nobody wants to amen that one. I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to amen it either. Because I've experienced it. I mean, I've been to the big, big events. I've spoken to big, big crowds. And I've done some big, big things. Right? I've been parts of like Billy Graham Crusades and, and all that stuff where they, they stage people walking down and, and all that. It's like, I know how it all works. And it would be real easy to just ride on those coattails. But until you get your personal own sacrifice and worship with God, all the rest of it don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing. Don't come in here thinking you can ride on somebody else's experience. Don't try to sit by the person that can dance and shake their hands with good rhythm and clap every now and then and think, man, I, it's going it's to fall on me. It might be contagious and you might get it, but you better make sure you get it. Then you try to ride on theirs. okay? and what you get, you better make sure is real, because I think sometimes we try to we try to get what ain't real. And then we then we all I got what he got, but I'm not getting what he's gotten. Right. That's like a Medea thing right there. You go get me. or I'm a got you. Right. We got you got to got to understand this, man. Verse 24, verse 24, get back to us. We get a real lesson, right? I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to my God. I love this wording, man. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to my Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. David refused to look at the cheapest way out to please God. You could, you could say it this way, and I think this is a quote by somebody much more famous than me. A religion that costs you nothing is nothing. Religion that costs you nothing is worthless. Something like that is a quote, right? Obeying the orders of God that doesn't cost you anything? Worthless. Worthless. Man, Jesus is all about love, right? If love doesn't cost you something, I, I think love is the costliest of everything. I mean, you think about how often you got to swallow your emotions, how often you got to swallow. I'm talking about real love now, not that gooey crap y'all watch in movies. I'm talking about like love. Y'all got to understand now, love is a command. Don't look at me like that woman, right? Right? I meant woman in the way Jesus called his mama woman and it was fully respectable, right? But think about it. We watch all that stuff on TV and it sets us up to thinking like love is a choice. Oh, well, when she's pretty and she's on time, that ain't never going to happen. Right. So so go to something else. Right. But when we do all that real love, real love is when they done ticked you off and you still got to love them. Real love is when they done drove you. But real love is when they passed the gas station after you already had a gas pulling the camper. I can't believe you're still sitting together after that weekend. You know what I'm saying? Real love got to cost us something, man. I'm going to tell you right now, you shouldn't marry somebody until love has cost you something in a relationship. You got to check it out. I'm telling you, you got to check it out because if you ain't checked it out, you may be fooled by all the emotions. Huh? I'm telling you. I remember one time we were early dating. I don't even know if we've been dating a year yet. And I got sick. And I, I, I'm going to tell you now, I got that man pride thing, so I like I don't get sick in front of nobody. Right? I might walk off. At the other day when I was dying, I walked off. You're not going to watch me die. I'm going to die on my own. You know what I'm saying? Like, it may be sound stupid to you, and when the esophagus is closing and you can't breathe and you all alone, like, I'm going to die on my own. You don't get to look at me die. That's the kind of guy I am, okay? Right? But but but, <laughs> but I, re- I remember early on dating, man, and, and I'm talking like, not to be too, but just a nasty moment, okay? A nasty moment. And I went home and I said, that girl ain't never calling me again. <laughs> like, that's it. It's over. I thought she was the one and I thought we had love. After what she just saw, ain't no way. So when she called the next day to see if I was all right and tell me she cleaned up my mess, I was like, oh, that's cool. 
It was at your mama's house, so I'm glad you cleaned it up so she don't get mad at me, right? Think about it. That's real love, though, man, when you don't see somebody that nasty and still going. When she hugs me when I get home from work and I stink like that, you know, that's real love. Now, she does push me away quickly and tell me to go get a shower, but love ought to cost you something. Now, if we say it with all this relationship like this going on, what makes it any different with God? What makes it any different with God? We're willing to we're willing to say so much, but we're willing to let it cost us something. David said, man, I'm not I'm not getting off cheap. If it's going to be real worship and real sacrifice, it's going to cost me something. So verse 25, David's altar and David's sacrifice. Look at the very last verse. He built an altar. To Yahweh there and offered burnt offerings and he offered fellowship offerings. Some of the translations may say peace offerings, a little more accurate. Well, they're, they're, they're equal. I don't even say one more. Accurate. Then Yahweh was receptive to the prayer for the land and the plague of Israel ended. Man, now we get like what other areas of scripture say, right? If my people were humble themselves and they would pray, then I'll, then I'll heal stuff. He's, 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 he's illustrating that right now. But it started with what? Him building this altar to the Lord. Two, two, two sacrifices going. Burn offerings. That's atonement for sin. Right? And then this peace offering or fellowship offering, that's exactly what peace offering is. It's so that you have fellowship with God. So David's whole thing is bathed in this turning occasion of sin to punishment to an occasion for worship. And if you go back to, to the very beginning and we look at what they've been searching for, they've been longing for what a king. David's a real good king. Probably the best king they ever have. Probably why we have so much written about it. But is David perfect? Far from it, man. Far from it. So maybe even David, in a sense, is illustrating to God's people like you can get the best one you've got and it still doesn't match up to what I got. Right. He's told like, like we shouldn't be waiting on David. We should be waiting on someone that's coming from David's line. King Jesus. Right. Today, this king causes his people to die. What's King Jesus going to do? He's going to die for his people. Exact opposite takes place. Right. Maybe that's why we get that sheep and that shepherd illustration here in this thing. Maybe that's why we get a picture of that angel standing there like Abraham over Isaac getting ready to make sacrifice and God saying, hold on, I'm going to provide the lamb. Maybe that's why your pride's gotten in the way, right? Maybe that's why you've not repented. Is sin costing other people more than it's costing you because of yours? Let me, let me get a volunteer. Don't be scared. It's just a kid's puzzle in case you saw the pieces. Let me get a dad with kids. How about that? Pick on a man. There we go. Right. Now, I went ahead and destroyed this. It is a puzzle. But I want you to picture this as like this, this fancy vase. Because this is you. And at one time you were all put together and you were pretty, right? Some of us were pretty. Is that how you want me to do the illustration? I'm sorry. Tell me how you want me to do my illustration with the puzzle and pottery. Some of us were pretty. Maybe we should have got a lady instead of Fallon, right? But here's what we do. Here's what we do. We get broken. Y'all been there? Man, David's broken. There's no doubt about it. His people are broken. What's taking place in all these chapters has broken some people numerous times. Life will break you. Life will break you. I'm going to let Alan be God because he's cooler than me and he looks better and he can probably put a puzzle together faster than me, right? Here's what we do, though. We get broken and then we... We give it to God. We throw it at him. We, we throw our mess at God. Put that thing together, man. I didn't give it to you to look at. You're God, Alan. You're supposed to know everything, right? But but we do that. We, we, we get all broken up. Life's a mess. And then we just throw the pieces to God. Here, God, you put it back together. 
Here, God, you handle it. Here, God, you take care of it. Here, God, I'm sick of having a part in it. You just do it all. Can you hurry up, God? <laughs> all right, is it done? What? You're God, Alan. You have to be able to put the puzzle together. There you go. Show the world. That's a good job, man. Y'all give him a round of applause. What are you clapping for? It's an incomplete nine-year-old puzzle. There's nine pieces and he couldn't put it together. Can you get it so they can see it? You're killing me, Alan. God can't put... God, where are you going? <laughs> I'm trying to get to the serious part of the illustration now. They, they got it, man. Just, just go sit down. They got it. They, they. Father God, next week you give me an illustration. We need to talk about it a little longer before we illustrate Here's what we do, though, guys. Get serious now. Get serious. I know it's kind of funny, but seriously. We give God all the pieces, but we want to hold on to certain pieces. We want to hold on to certain pieces. And as long as you're holding on to certain pieces, how possible is it for God to complete the puzzle, pottery, whatever illustration we tried to make this thing, right? Is it possible? No, because God has. He's given, He's got sovereignty, but he's also given us free will. Like he's not going to make you. Right? You've, you've got to give him all the pieces. So that the puzzle can be complete. How often is it we get broken in different areas of our life, different times of our life, just like David, man. Look at me times he got broke. We Here's what hit me this way. We focus so much on David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of the Hittite and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to be honest with you. Today is David's greatest sin to me. Now, I don't get to be the judge of sin and all that, so don't think like that carries any weight at all. But what I'm saying is when we get, begin to get ourselves from trusting God, that's the greatest sin. So, so if David would have kept some of these pieces right now, even if he had recovered from Bathsheba, recovered from killing somebody and all this, if David didn't have a heart after God that made him feel guilty of a hidden sin and give God that peace, we wouldn't be preaching about David for over a year of our lives, right? You can't expect God to put you back together if you're going to try to hold on to certain parts. If you don't will, if you're not willing to give it all to God, that's going to cost you something. Understand that. That's why this thing's called cost. Giving it all to God is going to cost you something. But if you're not willing to give him it all, don't you dare get mad at him because it ain't going the way you thought it should look like. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, God. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this whole, well, we called it two books, but Lord God, you originally had it as one book. But God, we thank you for, for all the writing in Samuel, Lord. Lord, we thank you for where it's led us. We thank you for the heartbreak we've experienced over this year from it, Lord God. But God, we also thank you and praise you for the healing that's taking place, Lord God. God, there's somebody in here this morning, Lord, that's like David. Like They, they still got some broken pieces they ain't handed over to you. Lord, I pray right now that they hand them over to you so that you can complete the puzzle, God. God, I pray right now that if our pride is stopping us, 
that you open our heart and our eyes to see God. God, make our make our heart and our conscience grieve because of how wrong we've been. Lord, if our sin is costing others, open our eyes to see it, Lord. Make us aware. Lord God, I pray that we humbly bow before you. God, that we're willing to pay whatever the costs are. And we thank you for the greatest cost that was ever paid, which is yours for us. Your great and holy name we pray. Amen.